when he's when he started getting all these diagnoses and school just wasn't doing what was right. So I started reading different books, Rights Law with a W. Everyone, anyone who's a special needs mom or dad or teacher should read Rights Law books. They're amazing. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. The following is a review from... I think this is my favorite reviewer name so far. It's from Lady Who Eats Well, and eats is all caps, E-A-T-Z. Lady Who Eats Well uh, on the Apple Podcast platform in Canada. It's entitled Helping Me in My ADHD Journey. This podcast has been immensely helpful in my journey. It's been a very isolating time, but now it feels like I'm a part of a huge community. Here's to keeping our heads up as we face our daily struggles. I totally agree that this journey can be very isolating at times. So I'm so glad you're finding your community and that you took the time and effort to leave me this feedback. As I've said before, I always appreciate any time someone leaves a review for this podcast because A, I constantly crave validation and feedback, and B, there are so many barriers to leaving a review in the first place. Like you have to think of it in the first place, then you have to stop what you're doing, And then you have to actually put your thoughts into words. And all of those steps are difficult because uh, ADHD. So again, thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, this is episode 48 in which I interview Patty Dedur. Patty is a neurodivergent author and advocate who educates and provides educational information and resources for individuals and families. She lives in Iowa and is the founder of Sensing Greatness and has also been a physical therapist assistant for almost a decade. We talk all about the sensory systems and Patty's resources on nourishing your child's senses with a sensory diet, as well as finding the best resources when it comes to advocating for your neurodivergent children. And of course, we talk about her upcoming children's book about kid, a goat with ADHD. Enjoy. First, I want to hear your story and... um, how long ago you were diagnosed with ADHD and what kind of were some of the signs in your life that led up to you discovering that it was ADHD? Um, so about maybe like 20-ish years ago, I was starting a new job in Minnesota, completely different than other jobs I've had previously. It was dealing with mortgages. And so it was a lot of new information that I had to learn. And when we were doing the training, I was running like every single thing down. I was kind of getting anxiety about it. And like the trainer and other people in the class were like, why are you writing everything down? I'm like, cause I don't understand all this stuff. So this is all new stuff to me. And then I would just get like very overwhelmed on the way to work and everything. And then I went and saw my doctor and he's like, he's like, he referred me to go see um, a therapist about it, thinking perhaps it was anxiety. And then they started asking me some other questions about things kind of more related to the ADHD spectrum. 
or I guess it was ADD at the time or co- combination. And um, yeah, I, I fit those way better than I fit general anxiety disorder. And at the time, this was back, oh, early 2000s. It would have been like uh, Ritalin that they prescribed. And I just remember being in the 80s and the whole Ritalin thing. And I just, I never even took the medicine, but then work became a little more um, predictable. I became, I taking all those notes made me very good at my job, actually. So when I started doing my actual job, people would approach me asking me questions after I was only there for a month because I took such detailed notes in the training. I knew what I was doing. So all full circle, it worked out well to have ADHD because it made me like just more and very in tune and taking as much notes as I could just to learn all the new material and everything. Yeah, you know, it is, I think that feels like a common sentiment with a lot of us, which is on the, in the one hand, we are very structured and very organized and like very competent in certain areas. And, you know, like, yeah, coworkers can turn to us or, you know, people look to us and feel like you're so together. And yet then there's the flip side of just feeling like such a chaotic, hot mess in other aspects Mm -hmm. of your life and feeling like you're living this lie. And if only people could, you know, if only people could, you know, see my closet or like all of these other ways (laughs) in which you feel like um, that you're, you know, you've got this imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. And imposter syndrome is something that I'm, you know, constantly working on myself as well, because I feel like, you know, you, you think about all the time, almost like you, you want to be someone or you think you are someone. And then, I don't know, I think you compare yourself sometimes to other people as well. So working with a mentor, um, is something that can definitely help working with a therapist can definitely help becoming a mentor yourself when you, when you become to a certain level is something really good too, because it makes you realize you are very good at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And knowledgeable. So um, looking back at your childhood, what what are some things in your childhood where you look back and you think like, oh my God, of course, the ADHD was there all along. The signs were there. It, it's funny because once my son was diagnosed with different things several years ago, like maybe six, seven years ago, I may realize that I also have dysgraphia. So when I do look back at my childhood with that aspect as well, having the dysgraphia, it's sometimes almost hard to say what aspect was my dysgraphia, you know, especially with note taking and what aspect was my ADHD or, you know, and so looking back, there's definitely a lot of not paying attention definitely has to do with ADHD daydreaming. um, Just the inattentiveness. It wasn't so much the hyperactivity, but a lot of fidgeting. Like right now I'm just playing with my ring as I'm talking to you. So yeah, always have to be playing with something. Yeah. You know, bringing up dysgraphia reminded me of looking back at my old report cards and <laughs> my, my son this year, he's in fourth grade and his teacher was um, criticizing his handwriting and, you know, really getting on him about being neater. And I saw, because he was at home so much this year, like I saw how frustrating it was for him to focus on his the neatness of his handwriting, because the more he focused on the neatness of his handwriting, the, the harder it was for him to like remember what he was trying oh, yeah. to write about in the first place, right? And I yep. had never even heard of dysgraphia. We, my husband and I had always sort of thought maybe he had dyslexia until I said I came across dysgraphia and was like oh my god yes this explains everything and so I want to ask you more about it but I also sort of had this realization recently 
that I also was criticized quite a bit for having poor handwriting as a kid, which I must have blocked out because I don't remember it. I only remembered, you know, I only realized that from seeing my report cards. But I also was originally left-handed and my kindergarten teacher forced me to become right-handed. So that like dates (laughs) me a little bit, you know, right back in that generation (laughs) that there were still teachers out there who forced kids to become right-handed. So now I'm thinking like, not only was I forced to become right-handed in kindergarten, but then subsequent teachers criticized me for having terrible handwriting. (laughs) And I'm like, that feels like such a metaphor for life with ADHD, right? You're forced to be a certain way. And then you're criticized because you can't do it properly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to, I want to ask about, you know, what, what is, we've got dyslexia, we've got dysgraphia. I've had some guests who've talked a bit about dyscalculia. And then there's also something, a term I had never heard of before until I was on your website, which was dysnomia. So um, why don't we start with dysgraphia? What is, what is dysgraphia and kind of how is it experienced in childhood? Well, dysgraphia, it's, it's much more than just illegible handwriting. It can be improper spacing. It can be improper, um, holding on to the pencil. So working with the occupational therapist can be very important. Your posture while you're studying. It can also be flipping letters still. Like I am still flipping my J's and G's. Like I actually did a post about it, about the struggles that I still have. I'm constantly, like, if I write really quickly, I am constantly flipping my J and G's, like oh, not only backwards, but I'm putting a, a J where a G belongs or a Q where a J belongs. So I'm, I'm still doing that misspelling too. You, you um, will for, forget a lot of different, especially vowels, I seem to forget a lot. I think everyone's kind of different, but poor spatial awareness, that's the spacing between the letters and between like spacing as well as when you're writing. So a lot of times kids will, when they're younger, will use the lined paper because then they can feel the line itself when they're writing and it can come in, in very handy. Yeah. And one thing that my son has uh, an issue with is the margin. He like each line, each next line when he's writing, he's further and further away from the margin. So it's like mm-hmm. he sort of writes the the paragraph is like on a diagonal. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. Um, so when they're younger, working on those skills, that pen to paper skill is very, very important. And working with the occupational therapist who can who can work on some of those um, fine motor skills and posture as well. As a child gets older, and until adulthood, if they're still struggling, typing is something that definitely should be looked at, especially when there's like word prediction software as well, because that's something that a lot of people with dysgraphia may struggle with as well, is just even starting an actual sentence. So giving that child those sentence starters so they can actually start putting down their thoughts on paper, you know, do graphic organizers for the child so they can put their thoughts down as well into some type of graphic organizer, which Teachers are very good about using graphic organizers. That's pretty common nowadays for teachers in the classroom to use graphic organizers for everybody. And I notice also one thing I do a lot of is is I forget entire words when I'm writing, you know, and I feel like oh, yeah. that's very common with ADHD. And I think is that dysgraphia or is that just the speed which we, with which we think that our, our writing can't keep up? Or is that basically what's happening and why this is such a common symptom of, of ADHD. Yeah. It could go either way. Cause if you, if you don't have any other symptoms of ADHD and it's just like, you know, maybe your brain thinking so fast, you're skipping words, then it may just be dysgraphia. But if you have other aspects of ADHD, it could be just a combination of both of them because 
this, you know, the ADHD in combination with other um, comorbidities is very, very common. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so then um, dysnomia, that was something I'd never heard of. But as soon as I started reading some of the descriptions of it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely yep. something I've experienced and something that seems very common in the ADHD community. So can yes. you tell me a little more about dysnomia? Yeah. So dysnomia is like word retrieval struggle. So it's not just like everybody has some type of word retrieval struggle. So it's more of a word retrieval struggle that affects you in your home life, in your schooling, in your work, wherever. It's a daily struggle. So it's not just maybe every once in a while you struggle, but it's a daily occurrence. And it's more common than a lot of people think. And um, dysnomia is kind of the term that's used for educational purposes. But as you get older, especially I deal with a lot of um, stroke patients. So we have, um, you know, different words that we use, like aphasia as well. So it, it, it changes as the term, because there's normally it's kind of like uh, a lower, a lower uh, for more like a, a school setting for the term that they use. So it's just a word retrieval struggle. So a child, let's say they want a fork and they, they look at that, they don't look at it, but they say they want a fork and they say, can you give me that thing, that thing? And you don't know what they want. And so instead of saying to the child, what are you talking about? Say, you know, you would say something along the lines of what color are you looking for? What, what does it do to help them come up with the, what the term is, or at least describe what the term is. And then when you hand them the fork, just have them like talk about the fork as well. There's also different, um, word mapping that they can do. So they can do like common words that they may be use every day, things, you know, around the house, forks, spoons, and school, pencil, paper, things like that. So they can do word mapping to help them with that word retrieval as well. This is so interesting. How did you get into this line of work? Well, doing stuff like the neurodivergency stuff, I never really did until my son started getting diagnosed with, with, with different things. And once he started getting diagnosed with all these different things, I just had to go full force into it because this was years ago. I think now with um, a lot of schools having computers, things are a little easier, kind of. I mean, there's still a lot of struggles out there with getting different accommodations and interventions in place and remediation. But when he, when he started getting all these diagnoses and school just wasn't doing what was right. So I started reading different books, Rights Law with a W. Everyone, anyone who's a special needs mom or dad or teacher should read rights law books. They're amazing. And so I started reading them and realizing what the school was telling me wasn't even correct. It was illegal. So then I started finding, um, started, you know, using these key buzzwords to get appropriate remediation in place. And then I started working with, not working because it's all volunteer, but started um, helping out with Decoding Dyslexia Iowa. And every state has a Decoding Dyslexia. They're a great grassroots organization. So I started volunteering and doing fundraising with them. And through them, I uh, just learned a, a lot more too, very knowledgeable people that are part of that organization. And so, you know, with doing all this and then other parents would know who I was because I was working with this so much. It'd be like, how'd you get this accommodation in place? How are you getting the right intervention at school how are you doing this so then I would just start telling them like these are the keywords to use you need to you know tell them the steps in place to get those right things to help their child yeah absolutely I mean I 
I saw something today on Instagram about like the difficulty of getting IEPs and 504s for children who aren't necessarily struggling, quote unquote, enough, you know, like for, for neurotypical children or for neurodiverse children who might still have good grades, but still need advocacy. And so I think there are a lot of those like um, dead ends when you're talking to school officials where they will come at you with, with, you know, shut you down for certain response for certain requests. And then as a parent, you're kind of like frozen, like, I don't know what to do next at this point. So yeah, that's when a lot of parents should look at getting an advocate in place if they don't have the knowledge themselves. Back back years ago, I had to get an advocate in place too for, for me to help get some of the things before I knew all the laws and everything. It's it's important to get that advocate who knows the laws, who can interpret it, and it's way cheaper than getting a lawyer in place too and going to um, due process. Mm-hmm. So holding an IEP meeting and getting the advocate and letting them know an advocate's going to be there, it's lets them know like you're serious and you're willing to take the next step. And that's kind of how I got a lot of stuff in place with getting that advocate. And they're way cheaper than getting a lawyer and doing the whole due process thing as well. It doesn't always work, but it definitely helps tremendously. So what would you Google? Would you Google ADHD advocate? Because I just realized I call myself that and I certainly wouldn't be able to (laughs) not be in a position to work uh, on, on someone's behalf. But like what, how do you even find an advocate? There are IEP master coaches and advocates as well. I usually, a lot of people will approach me and ask me, and at this point, I'm just telling people to contact their states decoding dyslexia. And even though people may have other things, they, not always, but a lot of times they'll have a list of advocates who are very knowledgeable about the IEP law and 504 laws. And that's really what you need. You don't, you need that person who's knowledgeable to know, like, to hold that school accountable so a lot of decoding dyslexics will have a master list in place. That's that's typically where I will, you know, tell people to go look first. I should probably put together some type of master list for each state, but I haven't done that yet. Oh, I know. Same. I keep meaning that's on, on my to-do list is putting together a more like comprehensive list of resources and things that have worked for me. Cause I feel like people ask me all the time and as you know, and, and I'm, I'm always recommending the same people or the same places. And I'm like, I really should just have put them all together, but yeah, you know, that's our to-do yeah. lists are forever long. <laughs> And it, and it is important to look at a state specific yeah, that's advocate true. because every state has different laws and you can look at one that's just here, you know, somewhere in the U S but every state does have little difference in their law. So try to find one. That's why I try to refer people to look at their own states, decoding mm-hmm. dyslexia. So, and if you have people over in England, I'm not sure how to help where <laughs> they refer. You know, right. People, yeah, I know. Canada mm-hmm. does have some decoding dyslexia though. So people in Canada, they do have decoding dyslexia in some of the provinces there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am very open about my own experiences with therapy. I've been seeing the same therapist for years, and it was my therapist who first suggested I had ADHD and set me on this personal path of transformation. But it also took a while to find the right fit for me, which is why it is so awesome that online resources like BetterHelp exist. 
BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online from the comfort of your home. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise, which might not be available locally. If you visit their website and read through their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off of your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. So tell me about Sensing Greatness. How did that get started? Was that through your son or was this from um, physical therapy assistant or, or how did you start it? So I started because I was going to be publishing a book and I needed some type of LLC. And so my original thought process was completely different than what my what my book looks like now and how I'm putting information out there now. And so I started thinking, OK, what could I put in place to help people or, you know, what kind of message? And I'm like, you know, I have a lot of people that approach me asking me stuff about accommodation, stuff about IEPs, stuff about neurodivergency. I'm like, I'm just going to put my all my stuff out there and help be and help be like a sounding board or a landing page for people who are looking for those resources that they're not sure where to turn. And then, so the, and the book itself is really doesn't have anything to do with accommodations. At least this book doesn't, it's just kind of like a fun little, a fun little kid's book. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's tell me about your children's book. It's coming out soon. Is it already written? It's already written. It's being illustrated right now. Um, the hope is this summer will be available for a pre-launch or pre-order. And it's a goat that has ADHD and it's just about his different excursions throughout the farm and interacting with the different animals and how everyone's just inclusive with him and the different aspects of ADHD that he, that he has and um, different attributes. And in doing so, I visit a lot of local farms here in Iowa. I'm in Iowa, big farming state. And I put a post on a hobby farm page on Facebook. I said, hey, I'm looking, I'm writing a kid's book. I'm looking to visit some farms to take pictures of animals to give to the illustrator. I had so many people messaging me. I couldn't even keep up with it. People were like, come to my farm, come to my farm. I probably visit at least 10 farms. And there's another 20 that I couldn't even visit because there were so many people wanting me to come visit their farms. And the only thing I said is I'll, I'll come take your pic- the pictures of the animals. I'll give you whatever pictures turn out nice. And I'll give you a copy of the book. And people were so welcoming for me to come take pictures of all these different animals. It was, I just loved it. It just, you know, makes you know, like there's a lot of Iowa nice out there and (laughs) farmers are just, farmers are awesome. Just got to love the farmers. I love it. And it's such a nice message. How did you choose a goat of all the animals? What was it about the goat that made you think of ADHD? Oh, there's a lot of aspects to a goat that are similar (laughs) to an ADHD. They're funny little animals. And in doing like, um, the whole hobby farm thing and going to different farms and stuff. Goats are huge as like a, a pet as well too. So going and visiting all these farms, I really got to meet a lot more goats than I did the other animals because they're way friendly as well with, you know, they headbutt you and I got to bottle feed some goats as well. And I put some, I have some goats I took pictures of where I put like reindeer ears on and stuff. So they were just a lot of fun to interact with. So that's, I kind of went with that aspect because that's, the animal I did interact with the most was goats with on the different farms as well. 
so you mentioned it was about the farm animals um, accepting the goat, or what? What's the plot of the children's book? To make he wants to make all the the animals. It feels like the animals are too. There's not enough laughter and fun happening at the farm anymore. So he goes around visiting the other animals to help bring smiles back to the farm and everything. And, and just kind of encounters the different animals along the way. And it's just a lot of interacting with the animals. And Awesome. I love that. So what does your son think of the book? Oh yeah. He likes it a lot. He thinks it's, he thinks it's funny in one aspect, the goat, because growing up we used to have um, burping contests in our, in our house and so in one aspect he's doing, and it was like alphabet burping contest. So in one of the parts he's burping that he's tries to burp the alphabet and stuff. So <laughs> that's not, that's not everyone's cup of tea, but growing up, that's something that we always did. We had contests of who could burp, who could burp the most uh, letters consistently. I think that someone got up to like L it was pretty long. Someone got up to. Yeah. My daughter is an expert burper. She does that. She, <laughs> she burps the alphabet. She'll burp like song lyrics. She's, she puts all of her friends <laughs> at camp to shame. It's hilarious. <laughs> Quite a it. talent. Um, that's awesome. So, uh, it, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, the, you had a download on your website for a sensory diet. And yes. so of course my first thought was like, oh, it's probably like, you know, eat protein because you're neurodivergent, <laughs> you know, neurodivergent, like the, like all of them. But no, this was your sensory, the eight sensory symptoms. I thought it was so fascinating. I hadn't seen anything like that before. Can you tell me more about just this concept of a sensory diet? Because I, I think it's so interesting and I love it. Yeah. So when you think of a sensory diet, your whole your, your body itself needs nourishment too. So not just your stomach, but like your whole sensory system. And, and some people have different numbers of how many sensory systems they believe they have. I go by eight. I think think it's just easier to do the eight number because some people even go delve deeper than that. And so each of your sensory systems wants nourishment. So like your your eyes need nourishment, your your sm- your nose needs you know smell needs nourishment, your taste, your hearing, your interoception, which is like your emotional regulation aspect and your hunger and thirst and all that, and then you have your vestibular, um, which is more of like your balance and and then you have your proprioceptive and body awareness. So every different aspect of your body craves nourishment. So sometimes when children are um, acting out or they, they seem like they can't control their emotions. It could just be like they need some type of sensory diet into their daily activities to help all their different um, systems get that nourishment that they really crave. And if someone's new to this and, you know, they're not sure where to start or even how to incorporate some type of sensory diet into their, their child's daily aspect, you could always look at um, working with, either an occupational therapist or or, um, sometimes physical or speech therapists can do this as well, where they will look at the child as a whole to see where they may need the nourishment and help come up with some type of plan as well. On my page, I have printouts for both. One's more of like a child printout and one's more of um, like a teenager because there's things like light a candle and smell a candle and stuff like that. And so the point is you would print them out and then the child can, and you would work with the child to see what, you know, 
come up with a plan to see what they may need throughout the day. Like maybe when they first wake up in the morning doing like swinging, maybe something that could be beneficial for them. Maybe it's something like uh, wearing aromatherapy necklaces and smelling that at a certain point of the day could be something that could be calming for them. Yeah. It's, I love, I love the concept of just looking at the whole person and like you said, feeding these elements of yourself that you might not even think need nourishment and need feeding. It's such a lovely way to think of our body, you know, and, and I kind of work this way with, uh, I love when I'm working with preteens and teens and we talk about the intuitive, just living intuitively, not, I'm not just intuitive eating, but also just like listening to your body's cues and what those sound like and how you can respond to them. Right. So like I do use a lot of aromatherapy because there is that sense of like, not only is it calming and it's a really easy hack to go from like, you know, when your anxiety is at 11, there's like really simple ways that you can bring that down really quickly through aromatherapy or through just like, you know, working with your vagus nerve and all of these breathing techniques and but it also, you still have to kind of get to the point where you even recognize you're at an 11, which can be difficult for us too, which is even just like oh, tuning yes. in in the first place. So I love the idea that like, you know, you can you can think about like your sense of thirst, you know, that that actually could be a sign like, oh, I'm super thirsty or, you know, like how tired you are, but then also just like, maybe I just need to listen to some really incredibly good, rich music. Uh, Like Mm -hmm. it's, I think that the more we tune in to these elements of ourselves, like the louder that voice gets in all elements of our life. And I think it's just, it's so, it's such a wise way to teach young people in terms of like self-advocacy. You know, we talk so much in the ADHD community about the self-doubt that we grow up with because we don't really yeah. feel like we fit in. And so we don't feel like we are experts of ourselves at all and how that kind of manifests in our adult life when it comes to our self-esteem and sort of and an imposter syndrome and all of these things that we struggle with. So I think like these elements of the, the way in which you can kind of present um, self-advocacy and, and intuitive learning about yourself in these ways with like using these different sensory systems, I think is so interesting and so powerful for children, for sure. Yeah. And, and what can help too, with, especially we do this at our house, uh, how, how, house with emotional regulation is, um, so my daughter, when she starts becoming overwhelmed, she has a poster board and she created this herself. She worked with a child to create this. And then, and then they'll put different things that can help them to be calm. So it could be things like call their grandma, pet their dog, play music, read a book, uh, swing. So, and then they can go to that board or they can look at it to, ha- to have that, you know, type of, um, cognitive awareness that they have that board to reference if they feel like they're at a point where they're going to be overwhelmed. So it's kind of nice to work with a child to know what, what would help them to calm, to calm and to feel like, you know, regulated again. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I read about uh, spatial awareness and ADHD. And it was some, it was like a blog post or something about like, are your legs covered in bruises? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, they are. Um, 
And I have, we have a hope chest in our bedroom uh, at the foot of our bed. Oh, and like that hope chest is my nemesis. I'm like, like I am covered in bruises because I always hit it. And recently I realized I had these mystery bruises that were like on the outside of my upper thighs. And I, oh, I've always had them. And like, I could never figure out where they came from, but they would, sometimes they would get like big welts. And then one day it occurred to me when I was going to sit in my office chair that has wooden arm uh, rests, that every time I go to sit in the in my chair, I like hit one of the armrests on the way down. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's where these bruises are coming from. But it's been like years of just having no concept of the fact that I was doing this and, and then just getting these mystery bruises. So I'm curious, like, I know this is like totally a thing with uh, spatial awareness, but like, why, what is the connection between um, proprioceptive uh, or lack of proprioceptive awareness and ADHD? Is it, is it the impulsivity of just running into a room and not thinking about what you're doing? Or is it, what is that connection there? I mean, there definitely could be some inattentiveness happening with it. It's just your, you know, proprioceptive is just your body's awareness of the joint positioning. So things that you could work on to, to, to help would be things like hanging from a monkey bar or doing heavy work, like uh, pushing a backpack um, or pulling a wheelbarrow, um, carrying a backpack, which a lot of kids do at school, that is proprioceptive, especially right now because a lot of kids aren't using their lockers. Wearing weighted vest um, is is good as well. Mm. And what does that help with? It helps with your body being aware of, of the positioning of where the different joints are and everything. Okay. So if I wore a weighted vest, maybe I'd have a better chance of not hitting my armrests on the way down. <laughs> I'm having a hard time trying to visualize that one, but who knows, maybe. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And then, you know, and again, also like just the idea of how so many of us have sensory overload and auditory processing and, and um, uh, tactile processing issues. Like it, yep. it's, what it again, what is the connection to the ADHD brain? Why do you think is it just because we are on hyperdrive? I mean, a lot of that could be because our brains just don't stop. They're always thinking. They're always chatting with with itself almost. So I mean, there's a lot of there is a lot of inattentiveness. There is some hyperactivity. There is the fidgeting. So there is a lot of aspects to ADHD that, you know, truthfully, a lot of it's still being figured out as well. There's still a lot of research being done to to figure everything out and, and why different things may benefit us and why different things may not as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, oh, I was going to ask you about medication. So, so you kind of were wary about medication 20 years ago when you were diagnosed, but have you tried it again since? Yeah, I'm, I am doing Adderall right now, just a low dose. And it, and it is helping quite a bit because... You know, I'm doing this side business of publishing the book, but at the same time, I am, I am still working as a physical therapist assistant. And then I do have a neurodiverse household. So there is still a, a lot going on. So I almost felt like very overwhelmed, which is, you know, again, an ADHD thing. And so, the you know, it helps calm my brain. So it is something that is beneficial for me right now. It's, I started doing it probably about two months ago. Mm-hmm. 
started using it again. So it was very recently. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems to be, that was certainly my experience with Vyvanse. And, um, you know, I was so worried about taking medication in the first place because I thought it was going to be, you know, you, you have that stigma with um, stimulants. You know, I thought that I was going to feel like I was on cocaine and it was totally the opposite. It was like, oh, I feel like my brain is on, somebody turned the volume down which can certainly help with all of the other like sensory overload issues that we were talking about. And, and, and in typical ADHD fashion, I a thought popped in my brain about proprioceptive too, because it is, um, it's hard to back no, up, no, but go ahead. it is like your body has to coordinate all the different movements. And so doing things with proprioceptive does help your body become aware because it has to coordinate the input about gravity and your movement and balance and, and, um, so it just, and it helps them and then it incorporates the vestibular system as well. So it kind of all works together. Proprioception and vestibular system are very much, are very similar. They have a lot of similarities actually. And is that what you work with, with your clients? We, I do do a lot of vestibular rehab because the balance is a big thing. I work in geriatrics. So balance is, um, a huge deficit that majority of people that come in, there is some type of balance aspect that we need to work on. Even people who just had knee replacement, they still are going to have balance issues because of the knee replacement and weight bearing restrictions that that may be happening. So I do quite a bit of balance and vestibular rehab and neuromuscular re-education and everything like that as well. So what would you say you love most about your ADHD? I definitely feel like my ADHD although definitely affects my sleep. I do love the creativity aspect. Um, you know, I try to make the goat in the story be very creative and inclusive. I feel like I, I try to have a inclusive mantra as well. And, and things I post on my page too, I try to be inclusive with having it be accessible to screen readers as well and use appropriate fonts. And as well, just, um, I think that creativity is just a huge thing for, for ADHD and for myself just that aspect to it, I think is very important and very important to hone in on that as well, as much as someone can. Mm-hmm. How did you get into physiotherapy from, what, what did you say you were in originally finance? <laughs> yeah, mortgages. Yeah. Mortgages. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, that seems like a very ADHD trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I have two different degrees. And so when I went back, was going back to school, I didn't want to do the whole doctorate thing for physical therapist, even though I already did have a bachelor's degree. So it came up, my mom was talking to me because she would work in healthcare about being a physical therapist assistant. And I said, well, that sounds really something that'd be up, up my avenue. And so I started taking classes about about it and it was um very difficult schooling actually and the medical board was was quite difficult as well but it's it is a great field for someone who does have ADHD because you're on your feet the the whole time you're working with COVID we're only working one-on-one with patients at one time we were doing group treatments was was a little confusing when you have ADHD doing group treatments but now you're working just one-on-one with someone. So you can really hone in on what their needs are, really focus on what can help them um, as well. And there are, you know, physical therapists assistant and physical therapists who work in school settings as well in private practices and outpatient and hospitals. There's, you know, and there's people who have their own practices. So there's a lot of avenues that you could go down if you do look at going, going that route. I definitely think it's a good route for people who do have ADHD. Schooling's hard though. 
But other than that, it's good. Yeah, I know. I've actually interviewed quite a few nurses or people in the medical field, and it fascinates me too because it kind of makes sense on on that on the one level in terms of you know being able to handle so many different things at once and and having you know that calmness under pressure and like all of the ways in which you would think somebody with ADHD would excel in such a high stress environment. Um, but yeah, I always think about like my experience with high school science and I'm like, yeah, that, that, that was never in the cards for me. Um, I, it, the, the schooling is such a big deal, but then I think, you know, I, that's why I love interviewing so many different people. Like I'm realizing, you know, that so many of us had such vastly different experiences with education, um, uh-huh. or our childhood advocacy and but education specifically, like it makes sense to me why some people do really well. Like it really is about just kind of finding that passion and finding something that motivates you as opposed to getting stuck in something that you find, uh, you know, mind numbing. (laughs) Yeah. And, and if you were in something that can actually hold your attention and keep you fascinated for a couple of years, you could totally excel. Yeah. Your, your call under pressure is a good reference because there are a lot of, um, when you see posts like what what's a good job for someone who has ADHD, there are a lot of healthcare jobs because there is that calm under pressure that you need to have in a healthcare setting. So mm-hmm. that is a good attribute to have as well. Yeah. Have that calmness. Right. Well, even even just as a parent, I feel like, you know, the the moments when I was definitely in charge and my husband needed to step out of the room were all of those like high stress <laughs> moments of of, you know, the kids vomiting and and or, you know, like when a lot of stuff is suddenly happening all at once with parenting, that was always where I felt like I did well. Any t- anytime there was blood or guts involved, that was always <laughs> my time to shine. So who knows? Maybe I would have been a good nurse. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I wanted to let you know about the brand new women and ADHD online community. So two things I hear time and time again from listeners of this podcast is a wow. I feel so much less alone. That's why I've started this free online community because I believe finding our people is an integral part of treating our ADHD. So head over to womenandadhd.com to join. It's totally free. And you also have the option at any time to upgrade. And that'll give you all sorts of exclusive content like early access to this podcast, a free copy of my audiobook, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom, as well as twice monthly live member hangouts on Zoom with me and other members where we talk about our ADHD brains and symptoms and hormones and nutrition and plenty of other life topics we obsessively ponder as neurodivergent women. So again, head over to womenandadhd.com to join us. All right. I can't wait to see you there soon. Um, All right. So now the term ADHD um, is so problematic for so many of us, especially women who have felt like those, that acronym just doesn't, we we don't relate to that acronym, especially the hyperactivity part. And now you were diagnosed 20 years ago. So it would have been ADD at the time. Like over the years, what do you think, um, what, what do you think of the name ADHD and kind of what would you call it if you could name it something else? Um, it's funny because we're I'm moderating a book club for ADHD right now. And the book we're reading is ADHD 2.0. So it's kind of a hot topic right now. And so we've talked a little bit about fast, but not much because we're just starting the book. But, and ADHD used to have different names. I think that's important for people to note too. Just 
all there's name changes for a lot of different um, things out there in the medical community. So things aren't always the same. So things are changing because the name that ADHD used to be was like minimal brain dysfunction. That's like a horrible name. Yeah. I think ADHD yeah. is way better than that. And so I'm not totally on board with VAST, but I think what if we just keep ADHD and just change the acronym of what it is? So it's like, what is it be like attentively daydreaming huge dopamine or something? I don't know. <laughs> mm, oh, that's smart. Yeah, because my criticism has about VAST has always been you can't just type it into Google. You would have to type fast and ADHD into Google in order to find oh, anything about true. it because it's a pre-existing word. So that was that always my true. criticism of the term fast, variable attention stimulus trait. But even still, like it's it's such a highly medicalized term too, which I think a lot of people don't relate to just the medicalization of ADHD. You know, there's some so much of ADHD is really just belonging in a neurodivergent spectrum. It's not a medical disorder. It's not a medical condition. It's not a terminal illness. You know, it's just like a, a brain differential. And and so it can sort of feel problematic, especially when you're trying to talk about it with your relatives or your friends. And you're like, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And they give you that look like, how long do you have to live? You know, <laughs> and that's just like, I feel like it kind of buys, it, it perpetuates this gross misunderstanding of what we're actually talking about when we talk about ADHD when it's sort of highly medicalized in that way. And then people are like, I don't want to give my child medication. You know, then there's all the stigma that's attached to that too. So the one thing I like about VAST and about ADHD 2.0 is the fact that like Halloway and Rady really kind of try to take away the the medicalized stigma of what it is and really kind of almost yeah. like democratize this idea of of what's happening, you know, and, and what, who we are and kind of what, how our brains are operating and that it's actually quite, um, you know, that a lot of the, a lot of the issues, a lot of the struggles don't come from the ADHD itself. They come from the lack of diagnosis. Another topic I think I talk about a lot with my guests, right? Like so much of yeah. our struggles, so much of our symptoms, so much of the trauma around ADHD isn't the ADHD itself. It's the fact that you lived your life undiagnosed or you're trying to, um, you know, force yourself into a neurotypical situation at work or at school, you know? So it's just the lack of understanding and the lack of acceptance. Yeah. And with ADHD, there's a lot of executive functioning happening as well mm -hmm. and struggles with that. So almost like a term, a new term could be an aspect of that, that encompasses some type of executive functioning as, as well in the name or in that way. Um, people are more hone in to like, these are the attributes and how we could help along the path with ADHD is looking at these executive functioning strategies and skills. Yeah, I know. Right. And there's just so many elements too. Like even when I was looking at dysnomia and I was like, you mean there's a name for word recall? Because like even just saying difficulty with word recall, I'm sure every person with ADHD is like, oh yeah, I totally have that. And then you get into that issue, like you're saying, like, everybody has it to a degree, right? And so it's yeah. like, how much is it affecting your life? Which is another question we ask ourselves all the time too, which is like, you know, the didn't you have a, re, you had a reel about that recently where it was like, you know, myths about ADHD and that idea of like, oh, well, yeah, everybody's yeah. a little ADHD, right? Or you, you know, this idea that like, so much of the reaction to ADHD or the conversations around it no, that's not what I mean to say. I just feel like so much of that misconception is the fact that um, everybody, 
what you're experiencing is experienced by everybody. And you have to kind of come to that personal realization where you're like, actually, no, I am actually experiencing this to a much higher degree than any, <laughs> than most people. And, <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. In the book, ADHD 2.0, Ned Howell does say, um, he does have a sentence in the introduction talking about like, a, because of all these technology um, and things that everyone could be a little ADHD. I don't know if you read that sentence, yeah. but we talked about that at our last book discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to phones, right? That idea of like, well, now that we have all of our smartphones, everybody has ADHD and you're like, well, no. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I love that book so much. I really, that's definitely become like my go-to recommendation for anybody who's just starting out. Plus it's like nice and short. I listen to it. So I'm like, it's only six hours. It's just like such a nice. Oh, wow. I know. Right. It's not a long book, but uh yeah, I, I feel like it really is such a great first introduction into yeah, what reference, ex- right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so now with sensing greatness, like how do 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 you work with clients? Are you starting to work with clients? How can people the, find out more about you and and support you? Yeah, at this point, I'm not working with clients other than they message me and I, I can provide information for them, but it's nothing I'm, I'm getting paid for right now. My focus is just trying to get this book out. And then once that's out, and then I have another book that will be out hopefully by Christmas and then other books too, but perhaps eventually down the road, looking at working more one-on-one with clients. But at this time, no, I just refer them to other people or, or give them other references or just help answer questions that they may have. I know, right? Yeah, I think that advocacy is so strong in us. <laughs> um, the the um, uh, the other book that you're working on that'll be released later this year, is it also a children's book? Yeah, children's book. And it I was originally, I did write something about uh, sensory processing disorder and it was a sheep that had it and the goat in the book helps the sheep, the sheep along kind of almost like a therapy session. Um, but I changed it. I think I may fo- do more something about dysgraphia and have the sheep have dysgraphia. So I'm not sure. I'm still working on it. So we'll see. It's going to be something, something with neurodivergency again. And farm animals. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, of course. Uh, no, I think it, I, I do. I, yeah. I do have other ideas that don't relate all to farm animals, but for right now, those first two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I see like a whole series of the adventures of this goat. <laughs> What's the goat's name? Yeah. Does he have a name? Kid. Kid. Oh, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a young goat. So he's a kid. I think you had mentioned this in one of our correspondences too, like how, or no, I think it was your your podcast guest primer, you're talking about like just how important it is to have kids see themselves in children's book characters. Right. And just like that idea of, I don't like the term normalizing, but I do feel like there's a sense that, you know, just seeing, seeing themselves represented in children's books can be such a huge difference in terms of uh, how they grow up in this world and how they, view, you know, that what ADHD is or or even any sort of neurodivergence. Yeah. And and not only the kid, but, you know, if parents, you know, have been diagnosed with ADHD and maybe the child's young that they haven't been diagnosed yet. So there could be aspects of just having a book that's referenced back to what the adult in the relationship or the aunt or the grandpa or, or whatever may have. So it's good to look at other books that may look at all aspects of the child and who's in the, who's in their life. Yeah. 
I know, right? I sometimes I wonder what sense my son has of ADHD because I talk very openly about it myself. He hasn't been diagnosed yet, so he asks like, "Am I going to get diagnosed? Do you think I have it?" We have that conversation all the time and I'm like, "Yes, I do think you have it." And <laughs> but I present it in such a positive light. I don't, you know, I'm not yeah. like, "Oh god, I think you've got the disease." Um, but you know, I'm always curious how he views it cuz you know, he recently he was like, "This YouTuber gamer was talking about how he has ADHD and my son got so excited that this kid that he idolizes was talking openly about his ADHD and I was so happy for him. But then there were other times like where my husband and I were talking about, we were driving in our car with the family and like my husband and I were talking about Ebola virus. And so, um, and um, we were just talking about viruses in general. And, and so my son was like, what are you guys talking about? And he turned around and I said, oh, you know, we're talking about like a virus where your skin falls off of your body and you bleed from the nipples or whatever it was we said. And my son was like, you mean ADHD? Oh, geez. (laughs) It's like, oh, wait, maybe you have no concept of what this is. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think it's just so important to have like positive role models um, talking openly about this and not talking about it like it's some horrible disfigurement or, or, or disease and disorder. Yeah, because when I was diagnosed 20 years ago, I didn't even really tell anyone about my diagnosis. And even up until this year, I my focus has always been my kids and other people's kids. So I don't even openly, until I started the, this page, openly talk about my diagnosis or that I have it. And now I finally like, I'm just going to own it. And this is who I am. Because my so much of my focus has always been um, children that I haven't even like focused on myself. So yeah. 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 That's very typical mom (laughs) behavior too. Right. Um, And then, you know, and that's really where the research start, where you start to get into hyper-focused research, which is like, how can I help my child? How can I help my child? And then it's like, Oh wow. This stuff is really sounding like my childhood. (laughs) I am really relating to this. Well, I think it's so wonderful what you're doing and I'm so excited for this book. I can't wait to read it and see it. So it's oh, coming. When is it coming out? Do you have an actual date? The hope is that the pre-launch or the launch itself will be this summer, but the book itself probably won't be available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other places like that until the fall. Okay. All right. Well, we can at least point people to your website. So how can people find you on the internet? So sensing, like your sensory system, so sensing greatness. So it's on. I'm on Facebook and Insta- I'm most active on Instagram, but I am on Facebook as well. I do have TikTok, but I'm not on it quite as much as the other uh, so, social media platforms. Yeah. And you've got some great downloads too. Um, yep. On my website, I have some free resources and we'll continue to be adding some more free resources as well that people can, can download and use. Um, really large accommodations list that people can look at because you know you want to use those accommodations lists and I posted this today as the kind of a scaffold to keep working on the independence and the self-advocacy as a child goes on in in their schooling. Yeah it's so great I'll I'll put a link to it especially in the show notes because I think it's it is really wonderful to see it laid out there like what what your child is, uh, what is potentially available and what you can even ask for. I think a lot of parents don't even know what to even begin to ask for. So yeah, that's so important. Awesome. 
Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. It was so lovely to talk to you and hear your story and hear more about all the great things you're doing. Thank you, Patty. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.